Welcome to episode 217 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Noah, and with me today is Michael, Jill, and Ryan. Happy Pi Day to everyone. Yay. Today, we're going to be discussing Google's involvement in open source with the summer of code and hiring developers to work on the Linux kernel. We have Bo Weaver joining us to talk security. We're also going to be discussing SUS targeting CentOS defectors with their latest change with OpenSUSE Leap. Later in the show, we're going to be discussing a sim of the entire universe, which of course you can play on Linux. We have our tips, tricks, software picks all this week coming up right now on Destination Linux. And just a quick reminder, the DLN Lugfest is happening next week. So if you're not aware, the Lugfest is, well, it stands for uh, Linux User Group, so Lug. And we're essentially going to have a full day of DLN because first we're going to record episode 218 of DL. And then immediately after that, everyone can join us to hang out, talk open source, Linux, well, anything geek, actually. Bubbly. Maybe stools. probably not bubbly or stools, but maybe you never know. If you if you if you want to join us for the lug fest, all you need to do is get an account at DLN Forum. So go to DLNForum.com and then go to destinationlinux.network slash lugfest, L-U-G-F-E-S-T, and put that in your bookmark that for next week. So join us next Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. See, I paid attention to the daylight savings time change. There you mm-hmm. go. Uh, yeah. so for the DLN Lug Fest. Can we turn the Lugfest into like a coup to get rid of this daylight savings time as well? I think we, we should. All mass yeah, together yeah. with pitchforks and torches. Yeah. And as Linux, we fix this stupid yeah, time changing stuff. We need stuff. to write some open source code to make this happen. And our community feedback this week, James Rice is to say, greetings, friends. I was listening to episode 211. I think it was Noah mentioned that he has a surveillance station tied into his electronics access control. And I was wondering what systems he uses for EAC. I am a security systems integrator, and I've been looking off and on for years for a decent open source EAC platform. We install solutions from many different vendors, but sadly, they're all Windows only and very proprietary. I'm on the edge of just writing something myself, maybe with MQTT or ESP32S. Anyway, just curious, what solutions do any of you have for EAC? Love the show. Thank you very much for the email, James. We're happy to provide any help we can. And of course, I think that the best person to answer this question is myself. So we're getting to EAC. Noah, just whisper what the answer is and I'll repeat it. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so EAC Here, Mike, and- Let me help you out. It's oh, so cool, cool, simple cool, cool. that Michael doesn't need to answer it. Just his exactly. production assistant can even answer that sure, question. Sure, sure, <laughs> right. So here's the, here's, here's the sad truth. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm also not aware of any access control systems that don't require Windows. There's just access control systems that suck less on Windows than others. Uh, and so the the access control system that I really like is made by Keri Systems, K-E-R-I. Uh, they're not open source. They don't run on Linux. And if uh, you find something or build something that does, then let me know. I'd be really interested. Here's things I like about Keri. First of all, they don't require activation on their software. So you suck it up into a Windows 10 VM. It runs on a virtual host. You only boot it up when you need to make changes to the system, which for most places is not a daily occurrence. But even if it is, you set up RDP, it works. Uh, it can be totally segmented off of the internet. And the other thing is for the day-to-day stuff, like swiping the keys and, and all of that, it doesn't require, it's operating system agnostic for the most part. And because most access control systems, no matter what brand they are, support uh, most some sort of a GPIO uh, interface, 
like when I want to unlock the doors, I do all of that from Home Assistant. Home Assistant doesn't care. It just knows that it's shorting a pair of contacts for the front door. From that point on, since the carry system is able to take advantage of that and say, oh, those two contacts are shorting and now I'm opening that door and, and, and sending that request out of the access control system, that whole process becomes operating system agnostic. So yeah, there's a, there's a there's a there's a, a small Windows component to those things that are required sometimes to get them online. I'm totally against obviously the ones that uh, there's a access control system out there very prevalent that it you plug in a Ethernet cord, it goes out to the internet, and then the company manages it for you, and you create an account and pay them a monthly fee, and that's how you control access to your building that you own and pay taxes on and have bought is some other company has it and they let you in if you pay the bill. But that that's out there and that exists. And and so carry systems is the opposite of that. They don't do any of that thing. It's all stuff that's on-prem. Uh, it all is done with closed contacts and relays and, and so on and so forth. So it's it's able to exist in an open source ecosystem, even if it's not open source it, it, itself. And like I say, if you come across something better, I'd be the first person to uh, to back it. Good job answering that, Michael. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, yeah. I'm so happy to be provide service anytime, for sure. What about the, the, isn't there something you said about surveillance station? Isn't that something that could be? Oh, yeah, yeah. Surveillance station is great. So again, not open source, but completely compatible with Linux. In fact, runs on Linux. So surveillance station is basic, is a add-on for a Synology disk station. So it'll run on any Synology disk station that you can purchase. But when I started doing research, when we were originally going to get into IP cameras and change over to analog, I start researching the different platforms. And we'd tried a couple different ones. And we 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 started with what do they install in Las Vegas in casinos? What is like the top of the top, the tip top, the cream of the crop? What is that? And then how do we work backwards from there that we think is going to be a good fit for our clients? Which means that there isn't things like vendor lock-in and and ridiculous license schemes and stuff like that. And so we started knocking them down and 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 comparing. And what we found was if you're looking for the best features for ownership of a device, you just don't get any better than the Synology Disk Station. And so uh, Synology Disk Station, you add Surveillance Station to that, uh, which is just an add-on in their package manager, which runs on top of Linux. Uh, and it's a perfectly suited device for doing things like NVR because guess what NASA's are good at? Writing a bunch of video to disk. Uh, and so you load it. The UI is gorgeous. It competes with all of the uh, a full proprietary licensed, uh, you know, things that you have to go and and pay a perpetual fee for that our clients have come to expect and kind of look for. It has a great mobile app. Again, all self-hosted, nothing doing a proxy connection. You actually have to know how to forward a port these days. I know that's shocking to some people. Like <gasps> it doesn't, I can't just log on and type my seven digit code and have it broker the connection, but it doesn't Wait. do any of that stuff. But I like that. And so you can run them completely offline. The other thing is the way that they do the licensing and not all NVRs uh, license this way. Some of them will license NVR licensing such that you have to, like, let's say you buy eight cameras and then a year goes by and you say, well, I have eight, eight cameras. I'm just going to keep using them. Okay. One year goes by two, three, four, five. Now you want to add a ninth camera. You go back. The company says, hey, you didn't pay your licensing fee for the last five years on these eight cameras. So if you back pay that, then we'll sell you a ninth camera license. Wow, and I, that, well, crazy. and, and that's, t that's very, very common in the industry. So Synology doesn't do any of that. When you buy a camera license, and this is somewhat annoying, they ship you a physical piece of cardboard with a key on it that you enter in, and that's what unlocks your camera licensing. 
it's great because it means it'll work even when Synology goes out of business and doesn't exist anymore. I'll still be able to use and reinstall the operating system and whole nine yards on my NVR and still retain all my camera licensing. Super frustrating when you want to get something overnighted for a client. They're like, yep, we got that cardboard thing in the mail. I'm like, can you just read me the code off of it? Yeah, right, exactly. Like I'll pay you the money. This is 2021. We can do that now. But yeah. so, so it's kind of frustrating from, from that standpoint, but as, as a guy who I, I look at technology from the standpoint of I need to own it first before I can bank on it. And I'm all in on Synology. And well, let me ask, station. let me ask this because Bill brought mm -hmm. it up in our patron chat and it was my first thought as well. I have Synology NAS surveillance station. Why couldn't you use, and obviously you're doing big professional and what uh, James is talking about is for professional, but for a home use, couldn't you use a Raspberry Pi as your interface for the EAC or no? You could. Um, so you're right. That's you're right. That's exactly what it is, right? When we go to put a bid together for a client, right. it has to be something that can set out on paper and say this is an established solution, not exactly. something that we just threw together. How that said, that said though, there are things like Volumio uh, and Home Assistant that are very much ready to be packaged in that way. It just requires people to write documentation and sales brochures and all those kinds of things so that we can provide a support infrastructure around those solutions. So could you do something with the Raspberry Pi? Yeah, probably. This guy that wrote into the show sounds like that's his next step. And so if there's in a project like that takes, you think it's going to take three years, it ends up taking five years and it's 20% over budget. And so, right. you know, it really if to do something like that. Well, it really requires somebody that has a ton of extra time and is just going to dig in. So and build and I, a whole package, right professional package around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. We love hearing from our worldwide community. So what we want you to do is get your official DLN mug. You fill it with some coffee, not just any coffee, mm -hmm. DLN inspired coffee mm -hmm. or bubbly. Sit down yes. at your nearest stool and then send an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. If you want to participate in the community discussions, then head over to the DLN community forum by going over to dlnform.com. This episode of Destination Linux, it's brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean was, has been growing to be the new choice for developers when they want to spin something up. And the reason, because they make everything turnkey. Their new app platform service allows you to just write the code and then have the results appear on a server in a world-class data center managed by world-class data center technicians that keep all of these servers up and running. Man, I remember the times when some, a server would go down and you'd go over to the, the person and it would be this massive panic like, where you can't buy server-class hardware in town? This is terrible. You know, and it, it was like this panic and what, what are we going to do? And these days, it's like, Hey, I have an idea about a website. Oh, really? One sec. Let's spin that up and see what it looks like. Hmm, this is what it would look like, huh? Does it stand up under low? Well, I don't know. Let's try that. Oh, 100,000. Wow. Yeah, that works great. And you can demonstrate that in real time with just a few clicks. That's how easy DigitalOcean makes it to manage servers and get your code up and running uh, with little or no uh, little or no hassle. You know what's really cool about their app platform, though, is that how many times have you seen these platforms go down because they don't renew their SSL and they get DDoSed or those basic things that kind of take place over and over again and they protect against all that? That was pretty That's awesome. Cool. They manage all that for you. As a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you $100 credit when you go over to do.co slash DLN. Again, do.co slash DLN. It lets them know that you heard about them here on Destination Linux. It lets them know that you appreciate what it is that we do, and it gets you that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And a huge thanks to... <laughs> 
DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Joining us this week from his hacking shack is Bo Weaver for a brand new segment to the show. In this new segment, Bo will bring you a monthly slice of security in what we're calling the Hack Snack. Who named it the Hack Snack? Bo did not agree to the Hack Snack. I might have named it the Hack Snack. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, if 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 the community comes up with a better name, we'll call it that. But for now, the Hack Snack. So, do you approve, Bo? <laughs> yeah, I approve. But okay, yes. cool, cool, cool. Right. But yes, welcome, welcome to the Hack Shack here. We're stuck <laughs> up in the North Georgia mountains. There you go. <laughs> We're be getting uh, some knowledge bombs from our favorite pen, our professional pen tester, Bo. So, welcome back to the show, Bo. Uh, thank you, thank you for having me today. Hi, I'm Bo Weaver, and uh, I want to talk about a hack that happened several months ago. This is kind of old, old news, but still, I wanted to talk about something because you don't really hear about this much when the media and stuff about this hack, and that's the Solar Winds hack. This is the most righteous hack that I've seen in 30 years of messing in internet security. It really is. I mean, whoever did this, they hacked the update server. And stole. They had to have stolen the encryption keys that they used to sign the pack, the the packages that you know, the customers uploaded. And by doing this, what they did was, was they bypassed any antivirus because all these files that they uploaded, these Trojans, were digitally signed by Solar Winds. And this is one thing. And when I heard about this hack, my first question was was uh, how did they get the keys to sign these packages before they uploaded it to the up to the update servers? Because all these packages are digitally signed. Now in Linux, all the Linux developers I know, now in Linux, everything is signed by GPG keys. When you update your distro, matter of fact, if you've been in Linux very long, you've seen times when you ran your update on your system and like app get puked on you and said, oh, your your keys need to be updated. Well, a developer usually keeps these keys on a USB drive, so they're not stored on his actual computer, and he plugs in the USB drive, signs the package, and then the package is uploaded to the to the repo server. This way, if, some, if, his, if, if his laptop gets hacked, those keys aren't on there. And I even know some developers that even go so far in order to sign a package, they'll put a package on a drive and use a non-network computer to sign those packages and then move from that drive to the repo server. And when you do it like this, it's virtually impossible to get a hold of the private keys because these private keys are in a USB drive and could be in a safe somewhere. But now, when you get into big megacorps these days, you find out that most of your people that are managers of your IT staff have a degree in business management. They have no background in developing, networking, engineering. You know, they've got an MBA. And for them, yes, have, making sure the right people have keys on a USB drive or stored off, offline, that's really difficult and hard to manage. But you have a manager that doesn't understand the seriousness of this, and he says, oh, we'll just put it up on a file share somewhere so everybody can get these private keys. Now, you may laugh and say nobody will ever do this, but there's been three times in the last seven years I have I have seen this. And they even kept the keys in a folder marked keys. 
That's really course. hard oh. as a hacker to find that, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, you you take somebody like me. I've hacked into a system. I'm in the file server, and all of a sudden, I see a folder that says keys. That's going to be one of the first folders I look in. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> it is. And I have stole the keys to the kingdom of, uh, matter of fact, one very large credit card processor. I stole all their private keys, even for their bank accounts. Just to be clear for everybody, Bo gets hired by the companies to go in and do this. So that's what he's discussing. Yeah, there that, to make yes, sure that's so a very yes, important piece we need to specify. Yes, let's, be, <laughs> let's be absolutely positively clear on this. I get paid to do this. And I have a piece of paper by the owners of the company or the CEO that says I have the rights to do this. And by the way, anytime I do this, and like I said, I capture these keys and, I, and basically I steal these keys. But at the end of, by the time the report is generated, when I'm done with a project, any data that I have gathered from that hack, I run a secure wipe program on that directory to make sure that anything that I gathered is gone off my laptop after the project is over. What secure wipe program do you use? Uh, wipe. Nice. That's a well-named application. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a command line tool. It comes on Linux. You can look, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't come by default on there, but you can, you know, either using yum or app Gip or, you know, whatever your update, your, your package manager is, is just install wipe and it's a command line tool and you can have it either wipe a folder or wipe a file, just a single file or wipe a whole folder or wipe a complete drive. And you can set it up. It will do a DOD cert certified wipe. Very nice. Mm -hmm. So going back to this solar winds hack. So this impacted tens of thousands of companies, private this, companies. This impacted it, it, governments. Yeah. This, this actually affected over 33,000 networks, including the government networks. And you have to understand solar winds didn't catch this hack. One of their customers caught that they had been compromised and traced it back to the update package. Interesting. So these people were in solar winds for maybe for months or maybe even years. Yeah, stealthily walking around in there. And so and after and if you think about it, because this this hack went for so long, whoever these bad actors were, when they got in that network, I know the first thing they had started doing was hacking other machines on this net, on these networks, including the government networks, burying payloads on all these machines. And, and what we use and what hackers use is, is you can set a payload up, we call them a time bomb. And what it is, is it's a Trojan. It'll sit there dormant. You can, you can put a timestamp on it to where it'll sit there dormant for years. But you will know that like on March 24, 2022, at 2.30 p.m., this Trojan's going to activate. So you can be sitting there with a server waiting on it to connect. Because this is one of the methods that I've used on physical penetration tests with a, with a woman I used to work with doing physical penetration tests. She would, she would hack her way into an office and with a USB drive and, and get somebody to print some documents, she would stick it in there, the payload would run, and I'd be sitting outside somewhere with a server running with an open port, just waiting on that to connect. Once it connected, I'm in there. Interesting. And so because the time that they were in there, the length of time they were in there and burying these payloads, there's no way to be sure any of these affected networks are absolutely clean.
the only way to make sure that like whoever this bad actor is, is out of the government systems is to burn the government's network to the ground and start over again. Or if you own so a company. Solar Winds is proprietary software. And yes. it's funny because I was noticing that there were some comments made by Solar Winds in the past, allegedly, just to, for my lawyer's sake, uh, allegedly made in the past about closed source software, or I'm sorry, open source software being insecure and you can't trust it. And that was kind of humorous to me considering what happened with solar winds here. But do you think if solar winds solution here, Orion, which was the tool, as I understand it, that was compromised was open source, this would have been detected sooner because open source isn't guaranteed. You're not going to have issues. Right. But well, the way they pulled this hack off, it really doesn't matter whether it was open source or closed source because they were com they compromised the network, got the private keys. I mean, this could happen in Linux world. Let's say somebody got a hold of the private keys for Debian and got into the Debian network and got into the repo servers. They could do something like a CUPS update which CUPS is something that we, we all run on, on most Linux systems because that's your printer service. So you build a payload into the CUPS thing, you sign it with those private keys, that are the GPG keys that are used by the developers, you upload that payload and the same thing is going to happen, but it could happen in Linux world. You know, luckily most developers understand this and, you know, they don't, they, you know, they keep the, like I said, they keep these keys off network. They keep them on a USB drive. They keep them on a non-network computer. And that's the way that they, they protect, you know, Linux development that way. Where, like I said, you get into these big major corporations and, you know, you got to remember, you know, these, you know, SolarWinds runs on a Windows system. SolarWinds is developed by Windows developers. Windows has always had their mantra of ease of use. And if you have your keys stored on a file server somewhere, they're easy to use. <laughs> but the thing is, is security is not easy to use sometimes. I mean, you know, if you think about it, if you take the door locks off your, your door, or your house, you never have to keep up with your keys. You can leave and you don't have to take a key with you. When you get back, you just open up the door. But then you have to ask the question, is all the stuff going to be in your house when you get back since you took the lock off the door? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but talking about proprietary software, yeah, let's say this did happen in Linux world and all of a sudden people are starting getting affected. But because the CUPS code is open source, you know, I could look at the, some old source code, run a diff on it and find where somebody had buried, buried a payload in there. But you can't do that with proprietary software because you can't view the source code. You know, you get a DLL or, or an executable file from, from SolarWinds. The only thing you've got to go by is that digital signature that that's a valid file. So yeah. when you hack that signature, you know, now it's a valid file. So this is why when you download files, like when you're downloading Tor and other things, they have a specific key that they post there that you're supposed to check against. I imagine 99% yeah. of people don't, right? They just download the file and then install it. Yeah. That's why it's important to actually start doing those key checks to make sure that it's actually signed by the developer. Bo, as always, you've delivered a ton of knowledge mm -hmm. on something that, honestly, I only knew the the high level, just 
bare minimum on this and you've given me a lot to think about and i think a lot of developers to think about because this could have happened to anybody and no i know you've been wanting to ask a question so let me turn it over to you real quick before we close out the segment can you go into a little bit of detail on how the guy who actually found this found this what kind of things do system administrators want to be on the lookout for you know what what kind of insight can you give to that well, luckily, the people that caught it was this was a, a internet security company, FireEye, and probably the only reason why they caught it is is they are an internet security company, and they you know they saw outbound connections that uh, weren't supposed to be happening, and they were able to trace it back. But if you know, like I said, this could be running for years in say, you know, MegaBank.com, and MegaBank probably would have never seen it. It was only till it got on to a security consulting company's network that it was able to get caught. So the outbound traffic monitoring obviously is a very important part of this getting captured, uh, which makes me happy because that's something I even do a lot on my own home network to watch what connections are going in and out and something people could definitely look for um, as you know, a sign that you're being, you've been breached potentially or have something a bad actor in one of your systems. Right. Yeah. You just need to not keep your keys in the keys folder, Ryan. That solves that too. A lot what, of well, what I do, it's really safe is I create a folder called keys, but then I have six under folders under that before you get to the password file. So that hacker, that hacker uh, really has to want it, you know? The old sys32 folder yeah. trick. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I keep it in a, in a dot key. Folder. There you go. There you go. It's a hidden folder. (laughs) You guys are going to laugh at me because for many years I still use floppy disks. No one's going to hack you. That that, that does that does make it a little bit more difficult. (laughs) We've got physical access, but we don't have drivers or drivers. They have no ability to hack Jill at all. Well, it's hard to hot, you know. It's hard to hack a floppy disk when it's out of the machine. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Well, Bo, thank you so much for joining. And we've decided and and Bo has agreed to come on the show, regular segment on the show, like once a month. It's going to come back, give us some insight into some of these either hacks going on or security practices and other things. Bo has a bunch of books out there too. You should go check out Bo Weaver, amazing individual. Love talking to you, Bo. Thanks for coming on the show again. And we're going to have you back real soon. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. And I'm real glad Really glad you're bringing me on for a normal thing. For Hack Snack. We love you, Bo. For (laughs) Hack Snack. Yep. (laughs) Hack Snack. Little tasty treats. (laughs) (laughs) This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. You can get started for free at bitwarden.com slash DLN. A a Bitwarden is a password manager software, and this is a very important piece of software because it can give you peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. And how does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important these days, and the best security practice for that is to have a different password for every account on every website. And that does sound like a lot to do, but that's where Bitwarden comes in. Because Bitwarden solves this by providing tools to store all your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords for you on login forms and stuff like that. So it saves so much hassle and gives you so much more convenience. And it also works across multiple different types of devices like your web browser, 
mobile apps, desktop application, or even on the command line. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves those devices so you know you're the only person who has access to that data. And I've been using Bitwarden for years now, and the reason I use Bitwarden as a password manager is because I, I trust it in addition to having all of these great features, features I also touched it because it's 100% open source software. And that's right, 100% open source software. That means that the security and of the infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community, and they don't just stop there. They could also... Uh, they could stop there, but they also bring in third-party software security firms to audit their code to make sure it is safe as possible. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account. But I think you want to check out their premium account because they have a lot of great features, and it starts at less than $1 per month. And with less than $1, you can get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, and you can also get Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, and so much more, including priority customer service for just one dollar or less than one dollar per month so that's ten dollars per year it's such a good deal so get get bitwarden and get peace of mind for you having your passwords and sensitive data secured for you and you also be able to support a company that that understands and appreciates open source software so you can let them know that you appreciate them by going to bitwarden.com slash dln and also let them know that you appreciate them supporting the destination linux podcast again go to bitwarden.com slash dln and thanks again to bitwarden for sponsoring destination linux so this is a question for everyone here google can we can we be friends again with google mm-hmm. because I, I feel like there is so much going on that they're extending an olive branch to the open source community. But then again, there's that other side of Google that's that we'll just call it the other side of Google there where all of the ad grabbing, metadata grabbing, the dark privacy side issues. The, yeah, the dark side. And, and I, I want this mm-hmm. other side to become the prominent one. I want to be friends with mm-hmm. Google again. And they do things like this Google Summer of Code, which I had no idea Honestly, I'd heard about it. I knew a lot of cool stuff had come out of it, but I had no idea how big of an event this is, how many great things come out of the fact that Google hosts this. Yeah, it's actually been, not only is it a big thing that creates a lot of good software, it's also been happening for over a decade. So this creates incredible amounts of gain in the open source software that we use and love. And then there's just a lot of great things, open source wise uh, contributions to the code and things that Google does itself. It's like the employees are fantastic, but the company's like Palpatine or something. I don't know. It's it's weird. <laughs> it's, it's playing everybody against each other or something. But I want to focus on the positive. We can focus on the positive and, and talk about the summer of code. So, Michael, what are some things that come out for those not aware of the summer of code? And by the way, if you're eligible you should sign up for this because it's really freaking cool and a great way to get to know a lot of open source organizations yes. and developers. And also, by the way, for those who don't know, the Google Summer of Code, when, when you sign up for it, it's basically for students to uh, become participants of different projects and they get mentors from those projects to participate as well. And it also pays the students to participate. So it's if you wanted to do that, you, it's not just a internship. You also get paid for doing the work, which is awesome, which is one of the reasons why the Google Summer of Code is a fantastic, uh, you know, thing that Google has been doing for so long that it's uh, used often as a, as a way to uh, participate in open source software, which is another fantastic thing. So uh, they've done a lot of stuff uh, in terms of like projects that have been participants like Blender, Audacity, uh, Debian, FFmpeg, uh, Gentoo, Gnome, 
uh, KDE, Cody, LibreOffice, uh, Python. You're just name dropping. Like, this is getting ridiculous. I know. It's so many things have participated. It is, it is ridiculous. Also, like Caden Live has been participating for many years, and I've seen lots of cool stuff come from that. So many great things have actually participated and benefited from the Google Summer of Code. So it's like, it's one of those things where, yes, Google has dabbled in the dark side on in many occasions. They also do make some stuff that is fantastic, and the Google Summer of Code is one of those programs that is. is I know is we have fantastic. a lot of Google employees that listen to this show. Can you all just, mm -hmm. like, lobby to get the Do No Evil thing back as a big banner? Aww. And then, you know, like... <laughs> yeah. Even if it's, changing even it if it's just, inside. like, a mouthpiece, it's a good yeah. starting place. At least, yeah, let's just get it back, because I remember, I remember just loving this company when it first dropped, and, and there's so many good things it still does out there for the open source community. It's crazy. Uh, at the same time, there's so many other things that I don't like, but uh, let's talk more about the good stuff. Jill, what do you know about Google Summer of Code? Yeah, so, well, I guess I'll talk about this a little bit. Um, they had uh, started at the Southern California Linux Expo doing um, coding classes for kids. And kind of, and that Love was that. actually their, their predecessor to the Google Summer of Code. And they had even, us Linux chicks, we volunteered and they even told us that, that this was a kind of a beta program into what was, uh, was going to come. So that was, it was really cool to be able to participate in that. that and awesome. yeah. And, do you get, do people get paid to contribute into this? Uh, yes, they do. Yeah. They get I a know small someone... amount of money or something. Yeah. The, they, yeah. the student gets paid, uh, based on a, like an allotment of time that they spend, they get paid. And like when they're selected, they get paid for mm -hmm. that amount of time that they spend uh, in the Google that summer is code. Awesome. It's yeah. a very, it's a, that, that's one of the things that makes the Google summer code so great because it's, it is, it's great to have like a, you know, a development sprint in that sense, but to actually have a part of it where Google sets money aside to pay the involvement in the, for the participation. It's, I mean, that part is kind of amazing. So it does. We're talking yeah. about paying for it. They also just funded two full-time Linux security developers to help yep. harden the Linux kernel. So we were just talking about security and all of that. So, I mean, obviously mm. they use this stuff a lot. This benefits them. Yeah. They're not just giving this out as charity or anything, but Still, this helps all of us, right? If the kernel gets hardened more, it gets more secure. You have two more full-time people working on this uh, for Google's benefit. This helps all of us in the open source world. That's one of the great things about open source is we all get to take advantage of it. So I was pretty happy to hear that news this week as well. So I don't know. Yeah. Google, come back to us. <laughs> <laughs> and I was excited by one of the uh, two Linux security developers that they they picked uh, Gustavo Silva, who's actually a, a friend of mine from the Southern California Linux Expo and the Linux Chicks of Los Angeles. And he has been a, a strong supporter of my organization, the Linux Chicks, and the board of directors at Kids on Computers. Nice. And is one of the five most active Linux kernel contributors with more than 2,000 commits. Dang. Nice. Pretty That's pretty amazing. awesome. That's a heck of a pick <laughs> right there. <laughs> and normally, Jill, we've just gotten used to having you on the show. Normally, like, really, you know them, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you, Jill. So I'm just kind of like, yeah, of course, of course, you know them, Jill. Of course, yeah. Of course. We we just we just when we hear that, we just say, yeah, of course, no, Jill knows them, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's really awesome, though, that you know who they picked specifically in there and uh, know their qualifications there. So mm -hmm. it sounds like they picked a good one. Oh yeah, yeah. you'll you'll you know that they have Linux's best interest at heart. 
And, you know, Google is no stranger to, you know, contributing to open source. And, sure, yeah. and that's what we know and love them for. So, you know, yeah. we want we want them to continue to do that and and to be a little bit more secure while they're doing it. Yeah. So. And a little bit less tracky. <laughs> a little bit less yeah. tracky. If they would just get rid of tracky. that creepy stalking part of yeah. Google and just stick to this stuff, man, we could really love this company for real. The other side of it is that Google is allowing and facilitating the connection to get these people connected with other people in their network space, right? And so it leads to other it, it obviously it's a choice for Google to get first pick of the crop as they come in people that are looking for jobs, but Outside of that, though, it lets people participate and meet people and build connections, and that gets people jobs. That's what lands people in organizations. And I've said numerous times, and I believe this to always be the case, if we want companies to change the way we do that, is we get good people involved in those companies, and then those companies will begin to do good things. You change from the inside out. You know, Noah, I want to highlight that because honestly, the first time you said that really changed a lot for me, like the way I viewed companies and the way they interact and kind of the corporate thing, this, this idea of being able to change a company from the inside, it's not an easy idea, but it's a brilliant concept. A lot of us work for some of the companies that like Google's or Microsoft's or others that maybe we, you know, on the other side, use Linux and don't like some of the metadata stuff they're grabbing and things, but that's never going to change from us just sitting there saying, oh, this company's stupid. This company's evil. I hate them. I don't like, they're going to still make billions of dollars and they're not going to care. But if you get enough of the employees in there, right, from the ground up, mm -hmm. starting in and, and changing the culture of the company to focus on these things, you're going to get a lot more done. And I have to believe, and I know I have a few friends that work for Google that they work really hard to try to bring the good stuff into the company and promote that. And obviously that's what we're saying here. Google has some stuff to work on, but they also do some incredible things out there that we just, you got to give credit where credit's due. And I think a lot of those incredible things were started probably from employees inside the company that said, Hey, mm -hmm. could we do this really cool thing to help kids learn to code? Could we do this really cool thing to bring more developers together? It would help us with our code. Here's the business case. We're going to make lots of money off it too, but it's helping all of the open source community. I love it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are fantastic things about it. And like, and I don't want to just skip over this part because it is kind of important. Google has been doing the summer code for over a decade and they've contributed a ton of stuff to a lot of great projects. And that's fantastic. But this year is kind of weird because they've had a lot of criticism over the Google summer of code for this year because they cut it in half. They, they cut it in half. And also they've been doing it for a weird reason. They said that uh, they'd be shortened due to COVID, which is kind of odd because the people having more time on their hands this year due to COVID. There have been many people who have said that they believe Google is doing this as a way to cut it in half permanently and just using COVID as an excuse to start that. So Aww. this made some yeah. projects choose to not participate uh, for the what the because the scope has been basically cut in half, and that one of those projects was Xorg. And Xorg, yeah, yeah. Xorg chose to not participate this year. And for those who are not, who are not aware, Xorg is more than just the X server. They also are behind the development of Mesa and Wayland. So it is a pretty big project to our organization not to be a participant in it. It's like a kind of a double-edged sword this year. Uh, but at the same time, there are still things that are participating this year that are doing a lot of great stuff. So 
it's not to say that the Google Summer of Code is is messed up because of this, but I just wanted to put that out there that there will be some mm. critiques. I'm not saying that they're not going to cut the. I don't know. Next year we'll find out for sure, right? Whether they're sure. going to make yeah. it a permanent cut. But I can tell you that the COVID, knowing from the inside of a company that you know, obviously not the size of Google, but the company I work for has tens of thousands of employees as well. COVID has created a ton of new challenges to where we've had to take resources that typically would be working on something else and move them around to work in other areas to account for. And because of that, I think it could be a valid excuse to say with COVID going on, we don't have the amount of resources to dedicate to this project because we've got all this other stuff we're trying to adjust for going on at the same time. Uh, you know, we'll see next year. I'm not saying it won't happen, but right. certainly it could. But I, I, I'm just happy it's being hosted, period. And my guess is now that you bring people together like this, if something where this kept shrinking and shrinking, it may give somebody the ability to launch something like this themselves now that those connections were made from Google launching it. So yeah, we'll see. That'd be cool. I, I'm, I'm just I'm just putting it out there because I don't want to be people... Because there's going to be... a disclaimer. Yeah, there is a critique to yeah. it right this year. So I just wanted to put that out there. But I do think still... Even in half, Google Summer of Code is still a very important piece of open source because yeah. they contribute a ton. So it is, and also it gives an opportunity for people who wouldn't normally have that opportunity because you you basically get a uh, introduction to open source, an introduction to different projects, and you also get paid to help work on those projects. That's that's still awesome in itself. Yeah. Okay. There's lots of really good news for us geekos. <laughs> in the Linux world. <laughs> so Red Hat has uh, been trying to make things right with their customers uh, post the CentOS changes. So SUSE has decided to capitalize on this disruption. And so starting with OpenSUSE Leap 15.3, you will now have an identical clone of its enterprise paid for SUSE version. Dang, Sousa, shots fired. Yeah, this is awesome. So the main difference between the two versions is that one comes with paid support and the other is self-supported. And this mimics where CentOS used to sit with Red Hat, you know, historically. And Dr. Gerald Pfeiffer, CTO of SUSE, who we interviewed on, here on Destination Linux on episode 212, stated, if you build a container, you can essentially build a SUSE container and you can then run it as OpenSUSE, or you can run it as SUSE Linux Enterprise. So what does everyone think of this move? Does this actually put OpenSUSE Leap in a whole new league? Yes, I think absolutely. Is it a leap and forward? <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> it well is a done. leap forward. <laughs> well, this I is really... The, I got my shirt on too. I love it. Nice. Look at you repping SUSE over there. This is really interesting that they chose to do this. I think from a business standpoint, purely, it was a pretty smart move because I, just, I know that... Okay, mm -hmm. just real quick, just so to clarify something, they did not do this because of Red Hat. They have been yes. working on this for a while. Really? So, yes, mm -hmm. 100%. Since April. They, 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 I mean, so the April, timing is just incredible. It's just, it's, th this is complete coincidental. So... They they started working on the jump concept from <laughs> April of last year, right? But they've been also making re adjustments uh, for a couple of years. From like it used to be, uh, it used to be a structure where Slee and OpenSUSE were kind of separate. Then they started doing the whole tumbleweed move, and then they brought mm. tumbleweed as the base for basically the base for uh, both OpenSUSE Leap and also Slee. 
And then now what they're doing is kind of merging it all together in the course of going from Tumbleweed, then to Slee, then to OpenSUSE Leap. So they have been working on this for many years, and I'd say probably since 2018 or so. so well, their timing of releasing it is incredible. Like, wow. Incredible. <laughs> it is an interesting situation of the timing. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Like right when CentOS changes, they're like, hey, by the way, we're now uh, going to roll it all into one. But... I think it's a really good move for yes. OpenSUSE Leap. Awesome. Obviously, we're talking about here. I think in 15.3, it'll be released. Um, this release is coming on July 7th. I think a lot of people who were you know, maybe disappointed or couldn't find the right solution or looking for something different, this is another option for them to go check out. I also like how they mentioned that you know you'll it's going to be so close the code's going to be exact so that you could run a container from one to the other you could just move it as you will i think it's a pretty interesting and the fact they're working on it the whole time is still completely unbelievable to me uh but it's still an awesome <laughs> timing and good for them i guess yeah. that's it's it's yeah. very interesting for sure it's it's kind of it's it's because susa has been doing like SUSE has been in like kind of the background in terms of uh, attention, but they've been doing a ton of super interesting things for the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. And just the basically the the concept of jump, which is what the leap is going to be. Fifteen point three is essentially the jump concept, which is what they made a branch to create this structure of tumbleweed then to uh, Slee, then to OpenSUSE. So it's actually not necessarily identical. You can use it identical. But uh, OpenSUSE Leap also has an extra thing that the community uh, can add their own modifications to. So it's going to be like a kind of Slee plus, sort of, like in that and sense. So Neil is telling me in chat that they've also increased their support for how long they're going to uh, the lifespan of each individual distro. Was that planned since last April as well, or is that that new? It, apparently last year. <laughs> So they they were already do like this is it's just interesting the timing for sure because they've already been working on it for a while and then all of a sudden it's just kind of like it's just Red Hat's like giving them the opportunity sus, sort sus. of in a good way sus but you <laughs> yeah. look at sus no I'm teasing. <laughs> and uh, one of the other big deals about this is that is the SUSE acquisition with Rancher. This is actually huge because mm -hmm. uh, Rancher is the most widely used enterprise Kubernetes platform. And as we talked about before in the show, there is huge growth in cloud and container infrastructure. And we, when we talked to uh, CTO Dr. Gerald Pfeiffer, he was really excited for SUSE's future in containers and, and the partnership with Rancher. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the binary merge of SLES and OpenSUSE Leap will not only make it easier to create containers for Rancher, but now there will be more, many more people making them and accelerating growth. Yeah, that's a very so good point. So you get 7.5 years of support on an OpenSUSE Leap version and 13 years of support on the SUSE Linux Enterprise? Right. Right. That is crazy. The, the 7.5 is the new version. It used to be less than that, but they now are doing the 7.5 approach, which is really cool. And I, I and it's it's basically thanks to the whole switch away from the 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 old style of leap where the, like to kind of explain it sort of the way they were doing it was tumbleweed was going to slee and then tumbleweed separately was going to open susa leap. 
And that means they couldn't mm-hmm. they couldn't benefit from the maintenance that Slee was offering because it was a, that technically a separate build. But because they're doing this switch, they're actually benefiting from the work that's being done through Slee that can then kind of go into Leap as well. So you get the benefit of all the work being done in Slee, and you get the extra bonuses that the OpenSUSE uh, community can add to it as well, which is super interesting. And the way that they're doing it is is very is very cool and i and i the 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 coincidence of its timing is really interesting too but (laughs) it's it's such a cool structure that it's just every single time susa announces something very like about their infrastructure it's always cool like open qa is amazing the open build service is so impressive love it all these different things and uh the whole like what jill was talking about with rancher that's a huge pl- uh, play mm-hmm. that they did because if you, for those who don't know, Rancher Labs was essentially number two in the Kubernetes space for enterprise. Uh, Red Hat was number one and then Rancher Labs. So by purchasing Rancher Labs, SUSE becomes number two and starts being a bigger competitor in that space pretty much instantly. So the the moves that OpenSUSE are doing is, or not so OpenSUSE, but SUSE themselves are doing is, I mean, it's brilliant. Really, really brilliant, mm-hmm. yeah. And also, yeah. like j- just to be clear, uh, there, there are things that Red Hat is doing too that is fantastic. You know, it's not to say like Red Hat is ruining everything no, or not nothing because the whole like free rail stuff is really awesome. We talked about that in other episodes, but it's just like the stuff that SUSE is doing is so interesting. And the the concept of their new structure with the new Jeep, Jeep, I, I combined jump and leap. <laughs> the, the new the new jump system is very interesting to its its own like. You know, showing how the this this path, this new path, could be so like valuable to like desktop users with having Leap as a workstation and enterprise and all that stuff. It's just a, it's such a cool concept. This is called bringing yeah. your best foot forward, and it's going to drive innovation from Red Hat. It's going to drive innovation from Canonical to compete. It's going to drive innovation exactly. across the board, and everybody's going to get something really better point. from it. Yes. I love it. <laughs> I'm happy they're answering the call, even if it's been planned for a year and a half. And it's just coincidence. I love it. I love <laughs> like it. how you put the quotes in there. It's just coincidence. <laughs> I think this was also actually uh, brilliant for um, education because yep. students, you know, learn on the desktop forward facing open SUSE leap and then can translate SLIS in big business and small companies later on. And so there's, you know, really a bright, sunny future for those of us who love the green geekos. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And there's also something that a lot of people don't know. There's a really cool thing that SUSE does. It's I, I'm pretty sure it's the only th- only company that does this. But if you want to give someone a beginner option for for uh, Linux, you can give them OpenSUSE Leap and you purchase desktop support from SUSE. Like nice. as a subscription model kind of thing. Very, very interesting. And I don't know of any other company that does that. So now I don't have yeah. to help grandma anymore. I just buy some, pay for somebody else to do it. I mean, that's not what, <laughs> yes, that's true. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could do that. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now into our gaming section, I'm going to cover a game called Universum. 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 That's what I go with. Sim. <laughs> So if you're tired of how stupid this planet can be sometimes. <laughs> yes. Abs- you got me right we there. I'm in. To Mars. in intro. <laughs> yeah. And you think things would be better if you were in charge. Well, you could put that to the test. Oh, in that case, game. no. No, definitely not <laughs> <any> better. <laughs> With over 4,000 very positive reviews, a game describes itself like this. Jump straight into managing your own planet as you guide a civilization through the ages. Build the ultimate empire in the universum. 
a new breed of God game in development by Crytivo. So through your guidance, your civilization will either thrive or die. Second this one. is an early access game, but they put native Linux mm -hmm. support on it. What else do you need to know? Jill, Michael, sing to me here. Have you played this game? I love these type of games, by the way. I love oh, yeah. these sim I games. know Jill's going to have much more insight than I do, so I'm just going to real quick put in my <laughs> nonsense. Uh, I okay. did try this. Uh, this is in very impressive for an early access game, by the way. It, yes. it is it is very well polished for early access. Uh, it felt smooth. It, it also feels very, very complex. So I know that the, you know, will they thrive or will they die out? I mean, for me, it's probably the latter. So, you know, uh, it also reminds me. I can't me even of, keep a cactus alive. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like when I was going through the process of like, here's all that you can do. I will totally fail at this. Uh, for but I still I still tried and it's still interesting and it's a really cool game. Uh, it reminds me of City Skylines a bit, but it like in yes. in terms of a city, it's it's yeah. an entire planet. And I just want to say as a little extra thing, the narrator of the game is so good. Like it's such <laughs> a like the story mode of like teaching you about the game and like then also has like tutorial stuff. And every time you like learn something new about the tutorial, like the narrator pops up and gives you like a really nice fun thing. And also it's it's a really well done narration but also sometimes it's funny i love that you specifically called out the narrator because talk about a person who helps create games that's completely underappreciated in game development because we've all been in those games that you're right. like getting into the graphics you're getting into the music you're like hey guys this is how you click that you're like what what is that? no you need a good narrator you need something that, that kind of brings you in there. And I'm sure that person who did that narration will be thankful because I'm sure they don't get a lot of credit a lot of times. But Jill, what did you think oh. about this game? <laughs> well, Michael actually st stated it very well. Well, one of the things I was really impressed with is, is uh, when you manage your planets, how easy it is to do. There are some other uh, universe for Sims out there and it's, it's it can be very complicated, but this one really starts off with a user-friendly, you know, beginner concept to uh, Sims and particularly universe Sims. Is there multiplayer so, in this? Do we know? Or could you I'm, use the I'm pretty, Steam local play? That is interesting. I, I yeah, don't, that, I don't that, think that, there is. I don't think there's multiplayer, there's, but yeah. the, the, the Steam uh, remote play together, I don't, maybe. Yeah. That's I don't know. I would love to fast manage all of humanity with <laughs> you or Jill together on a, Noah on a stream and see who ruins their civilization first. You know that is. I mean, well, we what, would. What I was... would. Uh, that would be interesting. Which one of us would do it worse? That's. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Wait, oh, and I enjoy the battles too. <laughs> you, Jill. Yes, I figured yes. you were just peacekeeping, but I'm well, learning because... this other side of Jill. <laughs> I know these are. They're. It's just the graphics are just beautiful. In yeah. This. yeah, yeah, definitely. It is so impressive. Like when I saw early access game, I did not have much expectation, but when I tried, when I actually tried it, wow! Like it, it awesome. doesn't feel. The only way I noticed it was early access because it has like the top right. It says beta, like yeah. in the number. Like otherwise, I had no idea. And it, and it actually played amazingly. I had it in 6K across my three monitors, and it was really impressive. And I had 6K. my sound system nice. blasting. <laughs> I have I have three 5.1 uh, sound systems hooked up <laughs> on this computer. So oh I my around. gosh! I gotta come hang out with you, <laughs> <laughs> right? So moving on from 
uh, one game about a planet to an application about a planet. We're going to talk about Yay. mobile or Marble Virtual Globe. So Marble <laughs> Virtual Globe is an, is an application from KDE. So you go to marble.kde.org. It's a virtual globe or world atlas, and it's basically like a Swiss Army knife of maps. So what it does, it's, it's like a desktop globe. If you've ever heard of Google Earth, uh, it's something like that where it allows you to have, like, you can pan around, measure distances, you can look at the map. And what's really cool is that it also, when you get closer in scale, it becomes an, a world atlas and has open street map uh, tech, uh, technology in, integrated into it so you can show you street-level stuff. So it's very, very cool. You can search for places of interest, you view Wikipedia articles, uh, create routes for bag dragging and dropping, and so much more, all kinds of stuff. It, it also has an, an app for Android. So it's, it's very cool. If you haven't heard of it, check it out, Marble Virtual Globe. I just want to mention, I got this app loaded when we were uh, doing some research for the show and brought my kids in and they had so much fun with this. So if you Aww. want to just let your kids go, because there's so many different views from the space view and then zooming in and rotating and yep. looking at different places around the world. They wanted to look, of course, where Santa Claus is and all that cool stuff. So we got to do all of that in this in this application. It's beautiful graphic representation of the earth and, and the different continents and everything else out there. Just a really cool little app. To, for teaching as well. You know, Raspberry Pis and other single board computers have really made an impact on the world. They put technology in the hands of people that previously couldn't afford it or couldn't maintain it or couldn't understand it and condensed it down into a literally a project you could go to Best Buy and, and buy in an afternoon and in an hour have something up and running. So our tip of the week this week is getting started on projects you can do at home with your single board computer. This week, we're going to talk about using Screenly yes. OSC on a Raspberry Pi. So Screenly, if you're not familiar with it, is a digital signage solution. It's a digital signage solution that comes pre-built into the uh, Noobs installer even. So you can, or if, even if you have other experience with the Pi, you can turn it into a Screenly uh, device. So to get started, uh, if you want to run a Screenly digital signage for your business or just for the fun of it, you can do that all off of a $30 SOC. So let's grab the installation script, which uh, we'll pass directly to Bash. We'll use Bash and then curl tacsl uh, HTTPS screenly.io slash install dash OSE.sh. And we'll have the, that exact full command for you in the show notes. Next, answer the installation prompts. Make sure that you change the default Pi user password for security and then reboot and get your IP address from the Pi by using uh, hostname TACI. Browse to the IP address, start uploading your files to display on your new digital sign. Want more ideas? Keep tuning back in to Destination Linux each week for more. So a huge thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we love your faces. If you want more DL, become a patron like all of these people here with us right now in our huge virtual studio behind the scenes. They get all kinds of perks like unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events, and live recordings. They get an after show patron only where they can talk to folks like Bo and guests that we have on and get all of the awesome insight and see all of the chat that happens behind the scenes as we're doing the show. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at DLNlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And also go right now to DLNstore.com and pick up some new swag. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and if you check out today in a, about an hour or so, depending on the live stream, the, we're actually going to have some hats 
that would be added to the to the store. And uh, if you're watching the recorded version, well, then it's already there. So go to DLNStore.com to check out the new stuff and all the other great stuff that we have for DLN merch and swag and whatever else you want to call it. DLNStore.com. And we have so many amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show with yeah. Noah right over there. <laughs> this Week in Linux with Michael, the DOS Geek Channel with Ryan. We have DLN. DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, and get your game on with our latest show, GameSphere. Go to DestinationLinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everyone have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Have a Drop good week, the mic. Everyone. Bam. Yay. Oh, I can't. It's on stand. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's attached to the arm, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bo, get that camera on. You know everyone's yeah. going to want to talk to you, Bo. By the way, Bo yeah. said he wanted to... I was laughing so hard in the chat. Bo's like, I want to create my own planet and have nobody else on it. And somebody <laughs> said, what are you going to name it? And he said, go away. 